Well, it is good to be back in the Gospel of John. Join me in John chapter 13, where we left off uh, about a month and a half ago. John chapter 13, and the songs we have sung, the prayer that Nathan has just prayed for us as a congregation. It's all about the glory of our Savior, the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are going to see that this morning in our passage. John chapter 13, and we are looking at verses 31 through 38. 13 verses 31 through 38. I'm going to read the text, set our minds as we begin. Therefore, when he had gone out, and Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. You will seek me. And as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have a love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. If I were to ask you to describe the Christian faith to someone in symbol form, most of us, if not all of us, would choose the symbol of the cross, and rightfully so. In the words of J.C. Ryle, Christ's cross is the grand peculiarity of the Christian religion. This is the crown and glory of the gospel. There's a play on words. The gospel's crown is actually the gospel's cross. John Walvoord, a theologian, wrote this, no event of time or eternity compares with the transcending significance of the death of Christ on the cross. Other important undertakings of God, such as his creation of the world, the incarnation of Christ, his resurrection, the second coming, and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth become meaningless if Christ did not die. This is why so many hymns offer praise to Christ because of his cross. At the cross... At the cross where I first saw the light. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died. On a hill far away stood what? An old rugged cross. Down at the cross where my savior died, there to my heart was the blood applied. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame bore the wrath, we stand forgiven at the cross. The cross is everything for the believer. 
It is where sinners are redeemed from their slavery to sin. You can think of Ephesians chapter 1. In him, we have redemption through his blood, through his cross. The cross is how the believer is reconciled to God. Colossians 1, it was the Father's good pleasure to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his son's cross. The cross unites believers into one body. Ephesians 2, Christ reconciles both Jew and Gentile into one body through the cross. This is how sin has been paid for and forgiveness has been given. Again, Colossians chapter 2, when you were dead in your transgressions, he made you alive together with him. How is that possible? Well, he forgave us of all our transgressions. Again, how? How? Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, that's our sin, and he nailed it to the cross. Our sin nailed above the head of Jesus on the cross. It is the cross through which we have access to God in prayer, Hebrews 10. It is what heavenly praise is going to center around. We read those verses earlier to begin the service. Revelation 5, the four living creatures, they sing a new song and they're saying, worthy are you, why? For you were slain. We're giving you praise because of your cross. And you can add the glorious gifts of justification, sanctification, eternal security, on and on the list can go. The cross is everything to the believer, it's the crown and glory of the gospel. And that is what Jesus focuses on in these final eight verses of John 13, his coming cross. Look at verse 33. This is why Jesus tells his apostles, I am with you a little while longer. My cross is coming. It's coming soon, just a matter of hours. This is why Jesus says at the end of verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. You cannot follow me to my cross. My cross is only for me. Only I can pay the penalty for sin. You cannot do this. This is why Jesus tells Peter in verse 36, where I go, you cannot follow me now. Jesus is not talking about heaven. He's talking about his death. Why Jesus then makes that promise to Peter, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. You will too die on a cross. In fact, look at verse 33. Rather, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And what's the key here? Even as I have loved you, it's the love of the cross that drives our love for one another. This is a passage primarily about Christ's cross. Now up to this point, understand, Jesus has explained to his apostles that he is going to die. 
He's been clear about this. It's been hard for his apostles to hear it, to understand, but he's been specific and he's spoken in detail. Just to give one example, Mark chapter 10, Jesus has explained where he's going to die. He says, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. He's explained how he's going to die through betrayal. The son of man will be delivered, betrayed into the hands of the chief priests. He's explained that he will stand trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the land. They will condemn him to death, Jesus says. He's explained that he will stand before the Roman leaders. The Sanhedrin will hand him over to the Gentiles, to Pilate, to Herod. He's explained that he will be humiliated and mocked. At the hands of the Roman soldiers, they will mock him and spit on him. He's explained that he will be beaten. They will scourge him and they will kill him. And this has been Jesus' message for the last few months of his ministry. You can read these predictions in Mark 8, Mark 9, Mark 10. He builds on each prediction. But here in John 13, Jesus is transitioning. He's transitioning as he speaks of his death. He's focusing not on the physical nature of his coming cross. Mark 10 is the physical nature. But here, he's focusing now on the theological significance of his coming cross. These are the breathtaking wonders in the spiritual realm of what his cross will accomplish, not only for sinners. It will accomplish salvation. We'll see that next week. But not only for sinners, also for him, his glory. But not just for him, the glory of his father as well. He'll also explain the impact his cross must have on us as we reach this world. We must be motivated by his love, his sacrificing love. He's also going to drive home the exclusivity of his cross, that only his death is the path that leads to his father. All of that is wrapped up in these eight verses. These are the breathtaking wonders of Christ's cross. So as we approach the passage here, we'll spend a few weeks looking at this. It is so essential. Again, the crown and glory of the gospel. I want you to keep in mind that word wonder. Wonder. And approach this passage like the hymn writer, another hymn about the cross, as the hymn writer tells us to, may I never lose the wonder the wonder of the cross. May I see it like the first time standing as a sinner lost, undone by mercy and left speechless, watching wide-eyed at the cost. May I never lose the wonder, the wonder of the cross. There's three wonders Christ mentions here. Three wonders of his coming cross. We'll focus on the first this morning. Begin here. Wonder number one. Wonder number one, the cross is the greatest display of Trinitarian glory. The cross is the greatest display of Trinitarian glory. It is where the Father and the Son are most glorified. 
Now remember, this is Thursday night of Jesus' Passion Week. He's in the upper room. It's probably eight hours, 10 hours from his death. And the dominoes are falling. As verse 31 opens, the dominoes are picking up speed. Look at verse 27. Satan has taken possession of Judas. Verse 27, Satan then entered into him. That's a key statement. Because what follows now from here on out is nothing less than a cosmic battle between the prince of darkness and the son of God. Someone must win this battle. Someone must die. Someone must even be defeated. Jesus will die. Satan will be defeated. What do we read in verse 27? Therefore, because Satan has now taken up residence within Judas, because of that, Jesus said to him, yes, speaking to Judas, but speaking to the power behind Judas, Satan What you do, do quickly. Jesus demands Satan, leave this room. He purges the satanic filth from his presence. He commands Judas to fulfill the wicked plan that has filled his heart. Can I ask the question, why here? Why let Satan have his way? Why not stop Judas in his tracks? Jesus could have done this. Could have done this in two ways. He could have leaked the betrayer's identity to Peter. Let Peter have at Judas. Or maybe better, he could have called down an entire legion of angels to dispose Judas on the spot. Could have done that. But instead of that, Jesus commands Judas to leave and he allows Satan's evil scheme to go unhindered. Back to that why question, why? Why is Jesus allowing this, commanding this? Answer, because Christ knows that there's a greater purpose at stake. Christ knows that the cross will be the greatest display of Trinitarian glory. He knows that the cross is where the Father and the Son will be most glorified. This is why Jesus, in verses 31 and 32, uses the word glory or glorified five times in those two verses. It's all about glory. It's about, all about the Father being glorified through the Son. It's all about the Father glorifying the Son through the cross. Believe it or not, the cross is not primarily about us. It's not primarily about the salvation of sinners. No, the cross is primarily about God, His glory, His excellencies, His majesty being seen and showcased and praised. We see that here, begin in verse 31, where Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. Now connect this with the therefore at the beginning of the verse. Therefore, when he, Judas, had gone out. Now that Judas has made his final decision to betray me, Jesus says. 
Now that Satan has indwelled him. Now that Judas is on his way to turn on me and turn me into the chief priests, fulfilling what I said in Mark 10. Now that everything has been set in motions and the dominoes are now falling, verse 31, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. This is reciprocal glory. The son receives glory, exaltation, honor from the father. And the father receives glory, exaltation, honor from the son. It's repeated in verse 32. If God the father, if this happens, conditional, if God the father is glorified in him, in Christ, specifically Christ on the cross, if that happens, God will also glorify him in himself. Reciprocal glory. Trinitarian glory. The son glorifies the father through his death and the father glorifies the son because of his son's death. Let's unpack all of this. It's theologically rich. We're gonna draw application as well. It's extremely applicational for us as we will see. I begin first of all with how the son glorifies the father through the cross. How the son glorifies the father through the cross. Look at the end of verse 31. And notice that Jesus uses, it's translated here in the present tense. In the present tense, he does not say God will be glorified in him through his coming death. He says God is right now. God is right now glorified in him. That is to say this, I am so certain of my victory. I'm so certain of my victory over sin, over Satan, over death at the cross that I can speak of it as an accomplished fact. This is Christ's perfect submission to his father. He will not cave into any temptation he will face no matter how strong on this night. Just think of the pressure, think of the pain Jesus will endure in Gethsemane. It's only a few hours away. And yet Jesus' commitment here is that he will not crumble under that pressure. His love for the Father is too strong for him to fail. His concern for his Father's praise is too deep for him to fold. This is Christ's unwavering faith in his Father's word. At this point, Christ is resting on Old Testament promises. Promises that not only speak of his death, but also his resurrection. He's trusting Psalm 16.10, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. That's not gonna happen to me nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. I will be resurrected from the dead in your presence is fullness of joy. Jesus is believing Psalm 22, that even though they will pierce his hands and his feet, he will enter the assembly and praise his Father. It's the promise of Psalm 22. 
He's clinging to Isaiah 53, that even though he will be crushed by his father, he will be put to grief. What's the next promise? That this suffering servant will see his offspring. He will see those whom he saves. And he will be satisfied. It's resurrection. This is how Jesus now is beginning to fulfill the end of verse 31, how God is being glorified right now as he speaks, how God is being glorified in him. Christ is showing that every step he takes down this painful path, his father can be trusted. He's giving glory to his father. That no matter the suffering he will face, his father will always remain faithful to his word and his promises. That even though evil will run roughshod over him, his father's sovereign design cannot be thwarted. Again, verse 31, God the father is glorified in him. And then when Christ finally does hang on the cross, he will glorify his father by showing the world God's holy hatred against sin. That even when sin is only credited, only credited to his son's perfect son's account, even still the father must punish his son. That's holiness. It's perfect justice. Jesus will also show the world his father's compassion and mercy and grace as he hangs on the cross that those sinners deserve nothing less than swift and just punishment. The father chose mercy for some. He gave the son of his love for those who have rebelled against him. He gave his son to take the sinner's place, receive the father's wrath, that is compassion and mercy and grace. Christ will also show his father's wisdom as he hangs on the cross. He'll show how God can remain just, remain just in his hatred against sin, yet still forgive sinners. Because in his holiness, he can't wink at sin, brush it under the rug. He must punish it. Here's the plan. Here's how he can do it. How he can remain just and still forgive And Christ will also show his father's love for sinners. Father's love by providing the necessary sacrifice for sin. Just think of Romans 8. God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's an exaltation of his love. This is why one commentator wrote, there is no place we can look to better understand who God is than the cross. There is no place we can look and more clearly recognize that he is worthy of all honor and glory than the cross. The cross is the highest moment of God's revelation to mankind. 
In the cross, we learn more about God's excellence, his faithfulness, his wisdom, his love, his mercy than in any other moment in history. If we want to understand God, we must study the cross. If we want to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ, we must study the cross. A crossless Christianity is a godless Christianity. Only through Jesus Christ, his suffering sacrifice, can God be known. This is the way God works. Put it in the historical context. This is what the apostles needed to grasp because they too were standing on the precipice of their own heartache in agony and suffering. They needed to learn this lesson. The greatest display of the glory of God came at the time of the son's most intense pain and agony and shame and horror and betrayal and humiliation. It is during that time that he displays the glory of God most. We need to come to grips with this. Here's the application. God still works this way. He still works this way. You will glorify God the most when you turn pain into praise. That is when you bring glory to your Savior. When your agony is turned into adoration because of the cross of Christ. You turn your suffering into service because of the cross of Christ. This is what glorying in the cross, learning from the cross looks like. This is why that same commentator added this. What are we to do when our worship of God grows cold and stale? Ever been there? The zeal is gone, perhaps. Faithfulness maybe is waning. What are we to do? Answer, we go to the cross. God will never seem distant when we're standing on the hill where his son was sacrificed in our place. We go to the cross to be reminded of God's faithfulness, his glory. To be reminded of his love for us, his compassion and mercy and grace on us. We go to the cross. In the seasons of life when you're struggling, make frequent daily pilgrimages to the cross Glory in the cross. Cherish the old rugged cross. Watch as Jesus willingly took our bruises. Be reminded of the greatest display of his love for us. And then the statement, never get over the cross. Never get over the cross. The cross is not the starting line we quickly leave behind. The cross is grand central station and every part of life runs through it. Everything in the Christian life needs to revolve around Jesus Christ and him crucified. We'll see that in verse 34 when he commands us to love one another. How did the son exalt his father through the cross? 
answer. He believed his father's promises, showing his father to be faithful. He submitted to his father's ways, showing his father to be loving. He maintained an unwavering faith, showing that his father is all wise and perfect. And he did all of that at the most intense time of agony. Which only highlights the perfections, the glory of his father even further. As we stand in wonder before the cross, let us draw the application from Christ here and ask ourselves, is this how we approach the agonies in our lives? The disappointments. This is how we face the sorrows, the hurts, the discouragements, the pains when they fall on us. Is our driving concern the same as Christ's driving concern at the end of verse 31? God is right now as the hurt mounts, the losses build. Christ's main concern was for God to be glorified in him. It's no wonder Paul writes, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Where does Paul get that from? From here. From Christ's driving concern. Let's transition now from the Son glorifying the Father through the cross to now how the Father glorifies the Son because of the cross. Again, Trinitarian glory, reciprocal glory. The Father receives glory through the cross, the Son receives glory because of the cross. And the Son's glory is found at the beginning of verse 31. Now is, again, Jesus using this present tense idea as it's translated here. And Jesus sees his coming glorification through the cross as good as done. So now is the Son of Man glorified. The Son of Man is honored. The Son of Man is exalted. Two things should strike us when we read this. First of all, Christ claims to be glorified by the one who has said he will not share his glory with another. And Jesus says, I'm going to be glorified by him. Certainly this points to his deity, his sonship. He is the son of God. But that's not the point Jesus is driving at here. Because the second reason why this should give us pause is that Jesus doesn't refer to himself as the son of God in this passage. It's the son of man. It's striking because John wrote this book that we would believe that Jesus is who? The son of God. But here he's called the son of man. And this is intentional. Because this title, son of man, explains how the father is going to glorify, how he will exalt Christ because of the cross. Jesus is referring back to a prophecy in Daniel chapter seven, where one like a son of man all of a sudden appears and he appears before the throne of God. It's a vision of the end of the age. 
Daniel 7, the verses will be up on the screen. Just listen to this vision, and we'll show how Jesus' statement and this vision are related. Starting in verse 9, Daniel writes, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. Again, just imagine the scene here. This is God the Father, the Ancient of Days. This is the Eternal One sitting on the Eternal Throne. His vesture, garments, like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. This is purity, this is holiness, this is wisdom. His throne was ablaze with flames. This is the majesty of judgment that surrounds his seat here. It's like a chariot throne. Its wheels were a burning fire. This goes back to Ezekiel 1. Again, fire here. Judgment. The glory of judgment. Verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Is this how we think of God's throne? A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Again, the fires of wrath that belong to God alone. This is wrath that will be kindled against his enemies on that final day of judgment. This is end of days. So the king here is getting ready to wage war. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads and myriads We're standing before him. These are the angels in heaven. They're humbled before their God. It's a regal scene. It's made even more majestic with this note, the court sat. The exalted angels take their seats before the Ancient of Days. They know what God is preparing to do, bring judgment against his foes. The books were opened, we're told. This will be judgment specifically against the Antichrist. He will be sentenced to the lake of fire. Satan will be thrown into the abyss. Verse 11, I kept looking until the beast, the Antichrist, was slain. This is judgment again at the end of the tribulation. Judgment against the Antichrist. The Antichrist's body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, the evil rulers throughout the world, for the rest, their dominion was taken away. So judgment finally falls on every evil ruler. That's that's not our priority to cast judgment upon them. It is God's. But now notice what takes place in verse 13. Because the majesty of judgment turns into the majesty of praise and exaltation. Wrath turns into rule. Evil turns into glory. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, be amazed. Stand in wonder. But the clouds of heaven, this is the glory of God, the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. He was coming. He looked like a man. He was a representative of man. But he's no mere man. He's the God man because he came up to the ancient of days. This is unheard of. 
He actually approaches this sovereign throne that's surrounded by flames of judgment. And amazingly, this son of man is not incinerated on the spot. No, he's presented before the Ancient of Days. He stands where no mere man can stand. This is the Son of Man who's also the Son of God. He's able to stand in the Father's presence. And what does the Father do? What does the Father give this Son of Man? Verse 14, and to him was given dominion and what? And glory. He's exalted. This is the exalted son of man. To him is given dominion and glory. And what is this glory? What is this exaltation? He's given a kingdom. The father sitting on his own throne exalts the son of man to his throne. This is the messianic throne. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. He's granted universal, worldwide dominion. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Father gives this Son of Man an everlasting kingdom. He exalts him, he gives him glory forever. This is the exaltation. This is the glory Jesus is referring to in verse 31. Now is the prophesied son of man glorified. Just two notes here. Again, it's as good as done. It's as good as done. Now is the son of man glorified. Jesus again treats this exaltation as having already been accomplished. He's not sitting on the throne yet. It's still future, we'll see that in a second. But it's as good as done. Verse 32, Jesus talks about this glory in the future. So verse 31, now is the Son of Man glorified. Verse 32, God will glorify him. This is future glory. God will glorify him, but notice God will glorify him when? Immediately, still future, but it's coming. All this glory is wrapped up, it's a package deal. He will be glorified when he hangs on the cross. He will be glorified when he's resurrected from the dead. He'll be glorified when he ascends to heaven. Glorified when he's seated at the Father's right hand, but the culmination of this glory will come when he is seated on his messianic throne. And he is given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And Jesus says here, that's coming. But it's coming only because of the cross. That is why the father will exalt his son to this throne. He will exalt Christ to the throne not because he's deity, though that is true, he is deity. That's not why he's exalted to the messianic throne. He's not exalted to the messianic throne because he's eternal. Those are not the reasons. 
And the reason Christ will one day sit on his messianic throne, the reason why he will rule from sea to sea is because he glorified his father through submission to his cross. Dominion, glory, and a kingdom is the father's reward for his son's faithfulness. It's a son's reward. That's verse 32, notice it. Verse 32, if God the Father is glorified in him, there's that contingency. If God the Father is glorified in him through the cross, through that faithfulness, through the agony and suffering, then what will God do? Promise? God will also glorify him. He will exalt the Son to the throne. If the, father, if the Son glorifies the Father through the cross, the Father will glorify the Son with a throne. And so what's the lesson here then? What's the application? First, the lesson. The Father's glorious exaltation of his Son was contingent upon the Son's humiliating of himself. the son's humiliating obedience while he suffers on the cross. Christ was exalted to the place of highest honor because, again, because he endured the place of lowest agony. That is why Christ is the king of his coming kingdom. Now we see this, not only here, we see it in Isaiah 53. Let me give you one passage though, Philippians 2. Notice this correlation between suffering and exaltation, agony and reward. Notice this, Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what we've looked at. That's what he's gonna do. But I notice the next three words here, for this reason. What reason? The reason is because of his obedience through humiliation, because of his faithfulness through the most intensive agonies, because of his glorification of the Father through his submission, for this reason, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What's that name? It's Messiah King. So that every name will bow before him. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That's exactly what Daniel 7 says. And they will confess that Jesus is Lord. He's the glorious king. And then what's the next statement? To the glory of who? To the glory of the Father. So the Son glorifies the Father through submission to the cross the Father then glorifies the Son through exaltation because of the cross. And what is the result of this mutual glorification? It all goes back, reciprocal glory, it all goes back to the glory of the Father. The primary reason Jesus dies on the cross is so that he and his Father are glorified. The cross is very God-centered. That's the lesson, here's the application.
Because again, the same submission, exaltation principle applies to us. Just like was true for Christ, the greater the sacrifice we offer the Father, the greater the glory we give him through our submission. It's the greater sacrifice we offer the Father, the greater the glory we give him through our submission, and thus, the greater reward he will give us for all of eternity. We want ease and comfort, don't we? We want ease and comfort so bad. And the message of the cross is this, submit in the agonies of your life and then you will be exalted. The more glory we give him now, the greater the reward we will, he will give to us later. So the question that must be asked then at this point in this passage, the question is this, is this how we approach our life? Is this how we approach our life? Do we value our future exaltation to the degree that we willingly and humbly order our lives around God being glorified through us? Is that how we order our life? Look back at verse 32. Do we hold on to the same promise Christ was clinging to here? The promise that if God is glorified in him, in us, God will also glorify, reward, exalt us. Are we clinging to that promise? Is that our living Again, the application, the greater the glory we give God now, the higher our exaltation will be later. This is the first wonder of the cross. The cross is the greatest display of Trinitarian glory. It puts on display like no other event in all of history it puts on display the splendor and worthiness and reputation of the Father. It puts on display his faithfulness and wisdom, his holiness and justice, his compassion and mercy and grace and love. It puts all of that on display. And it is the reason why Christ will one day sit on his messianic throne in kingly majesty, basking in glory, the Father gives him forever and ever. Again, the cross is the greatest display of Trinitarian glory, and it is so applicational for us. Let me just give you the second wonder, and then we'll be done. Wonder number two. Wonder number two, the cross is the only sacrifice accepted by his Father. Be amazed at this. The cross is the only sacrifice accepted by the Father. Look at the end of verse 33. Jesus says, where I am going, speaking of the cross, where I am going, you cannot come. The sacrifice required by my Father for your salvation, that sacrifice is a sacrifice only I can pay. You can't pay it. Only I can. We'll pick it up there next week. Father, I pray that we would be humbled as we consider for these next few weeks, humbled, bowing in wonder 
before the crown of the gospel. That Christ's cross would indeed be something we go back to and its influence would be on us daily. It would be the grand central station of our life. Father, cause us to praise you because of the cross. And cause us to look toward the reward forever because of Christ's cross. Cause us to love one another because of his cross. And glory only in the cross. Indeed, it is the way, the only way to you. Cause our hearts to praise you in wonder because of all of this. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.